you have your Bibles tonight, turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8. I was noticing in my notes in regards to our exposition upon this, I last preached upon uh, this chapter as we're working through it, uh, November the 11th, 2007. So we've been away from the book of Romans for about seven months as we were preaching through our series on, uh, I can't even remember what it was now, the basics of the Christian life. And we spent many months, as it were, looking at that. And I was reminded of uh, John Calvin when he was banished from the uh, city of Geneva years ago when he was pastoring there. They called him there and then they ran him off and then he got to come back. And there is a story of his return to that place that it was on a Sunday, September 16th. He climbed back up into the pulpit, entirely omitted any reference whatsoever that he had in regarding to his banishment. And he took up his preaching at the very verse that he had left off three years earlier. Well, that's just about what I'm going to do tonight. Well, I have not been banished, and I am certainly no John Calvin. But we will begin tonight with verse 33 of our exposition upon the book of Romans, chapter 8. We left off, you remember, last time looking at verse 32. We've been doing a verse-by-verse study through this book. So, we'll come now to verse 33, as if nothing happened these last seven months, and we will pick it up again. And he says here, the Apostle Paul, to the Roman Christians, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect, it is God that justifieth. So again, the text, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. What wonderful words these must be to the people of God as they read them or as they hear them. The fact that we, as we stand as believers in Christ Jesus, that absolutely nothing can be charged against us. Now, Paul, in the latter part of this chapter, if you do recall, or I'm making this new to you tonight, but in the last part of this chapter, the Apostle Paul has set down the believer's ground and assurance of his standing with God. It is by none other than the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And Paul sets this forth in order to fortify, as it were, the Christian against the onslaughts of Satan and, of course, the many temptations that take place in our daily lives, the temptations within and the temptations without. Now, the worst thing that could ever happen, though, to a man is to be found guilty before God, that his sins are not forgiven, and there lies upon him the eternal wrath and condemnation of God. That is the worst thing that could ever happen to an individual. Now, providentially tonight, we read the 13th chapter of the book of Leviticus, which talked of a very terrible deadly, contagious uh, disease known as leprosy. And we were to think if we had leprosy, oh, what a terrible, terrible thing it would be. And it would. It would be a terrible thing because, as I understand it, there still is no cure for the disease of leprosy. Or perhaps someone has got the news that they have cancer and that they will only have just a short period of time to live. And, and we would think, oh, that's terrible news. That's sad news. And, of course, in that one sense, that it would be very terrible and very sad news. But the worst news that an individual could ever have in this life 
is the news that his sins are not forgiven and he stands eternally condemned before God. That, my friend, would be the worst thing that could ever happen. In fact, as Jesus said, it would be better for a man not to have been born than to live and then die and then spend eternity in hell. That would be the worst thing that could ever happen. But Paul here assures the, the believer, the Christian, the true believer and the true Christian, that this is not so for him. Paul assures the believer that he will never, ever come under the condemnation and wrath of God at any time. In fact, he says in verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Or as the words there in verse 1 of this chapter, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. A man who is in Christ, a man who has, and this is the same person, someone has, who has believed upon Jesus Christ unto the saving of his soul, he stands forgiven, completely justified before God, and he will never, ever enter into condemnation. Brethren, that is wonderful news to receive. So those of you here this evening who are true believers in Jesus Christ, you have entered into that realm of saving grace by the grace of God Himself. You are never going to enter into the state of condemnation before God. In fact, the question that is set forth in our text here is given so that we may have assurance that there is peace with God And we shall never enter into that state of guilt again. Notice again. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Now you'll notice the words of our text are put in a question form. And that question is put forth here is, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? That's Paul's rhetorical question to the Romans. He's not waiting for them to write him back and say, well, of course, it's the believer who will know. He's not. It's just a request in order to make these readers believe and to make these readers understand something of the assurance that they have before God. And he wants them to know here that in reality, who is it that will ever accuse you to God? Who shall accuse God's elect? In fact, not only is this put forth as a question, it's also put forth, if you notice here in the context, like a challenge. Paul is challenging all foes here. When it comes to that relationship that we sustain as believers in Jesus Christ, Paul puts it forth here, who shall lay a charge to God's elect? Well, what's the answer? It is God that justifies. And that just simply means nobody. And I say this reverently as I can. Nobody, including God. Because you see, God's righteous demands have all been met in Jesus Christ. 
And as the believer has trusted in Christ, he no longer then stands under this condemned state. He is now in a state of justification. And even God himself cannot bring our sins against us and accuse us. As far as this aspect is concerned. So it's a challenge or a dare, as we would say, for anyone to bring condemnation upon us. To me, that's good news, isn't it? To me, that is news that is refreshing. That is news that I want to hear. That is news I need to hear in a, in a life that is full of doubts, a life that is full of troubles and sorrows. And you remember the talk we began this very thing that we are a people who suffer with Jesus Christ. Look in verse 17. If we're children of God, he says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so, be that we suffer with him, that we may also be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And he also talks about the whole creation moaning and groaning and waiting for that day when the elect will appear, as it were, absolutely sinless. And uh, the whole world then is changed and we are forever with the Lord. And we long for that. We wait for that. But there's a lot of troubles in between now and then. And brethren, as Christians, we have to go through them. The Bible tell, or the Paul and Barnabas went through the churches there in the book of Acts, and they reminded them that through much tribulation, we shall enter into the kingdom of God. So the Christian life is not this bed of roses that everyone makes it out to be. You know, just accept Jesus and all is fine. That's just not the teaching of God's Word. God's people are tried and tested and, and purified all along the way. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, let me encourage you to put that on your reading list. And that talks about a man who begins at the city of destruction and he doesn't stop until he gets to the celestial city. And all along there, he's had nothing but trials and troubles and heartaches and sorrows. And oftentimes, that is the lot of the Christian. And so Paul here then wants us to realize that in God's plan of redemption, his covenant, his working out of our salvation and all of this, he assures us that nothing will ever change our relationship to God. We stand complete, whole, justified, all those things. In fact, if you notice in verse 30, as Paul, as God sees it, it's completed already. It's as if we are now seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice what he says. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. You notice all of those verbs are in the past tense. It's done. As far as God is concerned, it's finished. The end has been put upon it. And we are just awaiting, as the Scripture says. We are waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our bodies. Well, I'd like to open up this text then by looking at several things. First is, we want me to read it again. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. The first thing I would like us to look at this evening is that God has an elect. I want you to notice 
Read that carefully. Don't misunderstand this. See it in black and white, if you will, here. He says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? There you have it. God does have an elect. He has elected certain individuals. We can't get around it. We may not like it. We may not care for that doctrine. It may trouble me. It may trouble you. It may trouble others. But it doesn't really matter as far as that goes. The fact of the matter is, whatever it is, it's here. Right here in the Bible. Can't get around it. You'd have to take Jehudi's penknife and cut it out if you're not happy with it. Remember Jehudi and he went through the uh, uh, Jeremiah scroll and he cut it out? Well, that's what we'd have to do if we didn't want this doctrine staring at us this evening. We would have to take out our little penknife. I happen to have one right here. And I would have to literally cut it out of my Bible if I'm not happy with it. But I'm not going to be so foolish and damn my soul over stupidity. And so I'm going to believe it just as it is. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? So let me say, first of all, that God has an elect. And for those who may have trouble over this teaching or this doctrine, here we have to say it's plainly shown that God does have an election. Now, the word elect or election simply means to choose. Thus, we can say this, God has his chosen in the world. There are those whom God has predestinated unto eternal life. Go back up to verse 29. He says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. So that's a fact that God has foreknown some and he has predestinated them to be conformed to the image of his son. And these who are predestinated, they are a people who as well fell in Adam. And except for the grace and the mercy of God, they too would have received the eternal doom that belongs unto sinners. But yet God chose them or he elected them and thus they are his. Notice it says here, God's elect. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? So it's possessive here, isn't it? Who do the elect belong to? They don't belong to you. They don't belong to me. The Bible says here and teaches here that they belong to God. He possesses them. He is the one who not only justifies, but he's the one who elects. This is a God thing. People like to say that today. It's a male thing, a husband thing, a wife thing. Well, brethren, this is a God thing. This is something that God does. God has from all eternity chose certain folks unto salvation. And they are a people that are his by this eternal election. Now, there are several things that we can say about God's elect. And we're going to look at that this evening. First of all, they are those, that is God's elect, are those whom God has set his eternal love or affection upon. God's elect, according to the Bible, are those whom God has set his eternal love or his affection upon. Turn over, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is the Old Testament. This is the fifth book in the Old Testament. So, those of us looking for this, it's in Deuteronomy 7. And Paul, or uh, Moses here is, in re- is speaking of, of the Lord and why he chose Israel, which, of course, is a type of the elect. And notice... That is God who did so, and he does so, and he loves them. Notice this. He says in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 7, 
For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath, and here's the word, chosen thee to be a special people unto himself. Above all people that are upon the face of the earth. So we see here now he distinguished some from others, didn't he? He says he's loved, he has chosen you above all the other people upon the earth. There are other folks, he says, but he chose you. So there's a distinction here. He says, for thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord, now notice, did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. In other words, he says, I didn't choose you because you were so numerous. He says, in reality, notice the last part of that phrase, for ye were the fewest of all people. As a nation, you were just a drop in a bucket. There were other nations who had many, many more folks than you, but I chose you not for that reason. And I loved you not for that reason. But then notice verse 8. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers and so forth. So one of the things we can note in this eternal election is that this is when, how, where, that God set his eternal love or affection upon them. It is these and these alone that God has loved from all eternity. And if it was done in eternity, then obviously there was never a time when he did not love his elect. The scripture says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The word foreknowledge there means God's love. The word foreknowledge doesn't mean just a bare knowing of something, but it is a special knowing, a special kind of a love. Like the Bible talks about uh, Adam knew his wife. He didn't think, ah, Eve, I know you. But it meant in a special relationship. And thus, one of the sons of Adam's was born through that knowing process. So it had more to do than just a, oh, I know who you are. But it is a, it's an act of special love uh, towards something or someone. And it says here that we were the elect according to that foreknowledge or that love, that special love of God the Father. Another characteristic that we can say about the elect is that they are chosen in Christ. The elect are chosen in Christ. The old Puritans used to say that uh, Jesus Christ was the fountainhead of our election. In other words, he began, as it were, with Christ. Even Christ himself was chosen by God. God the Father chose his Son to be the mediator of God's elect. And a prophecy that relates to the Lord Jesus from Isaiah 42, verse 1, and we know it does because the New Testament tells us that this passage is in reference to Jesus. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Notice here, Jesus is styled or called his elect, mine elect. And thus then we are chosen in him. Ephesians chapter 1. Some very pivotal verses in regards to this. Chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings, where? In heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him, that is, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love and so forth. And then the third thing we can say about this election is that this election of His elect is unto salvation and holiness and heaven. This election of God's elect is unto salvation, holiness, and finally heaven. You see, brethren, it's just not that God has a people, but it's a people that He purposed to save. It's a people, yes, true, that He's chosen and they too fell in Adam, but they too need deliverance from the pain and the penalty of sin and the condemnation to wit. They need eternal life. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we are bound, Paul says, We're bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. The text we just read a moment ago from Ephesians tells us it is unto holiness, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. And God will see that every one of those whom He has chosen will be in heaven. Remember our text just before that I said, if you look at it, all these are done in the past tense. We are standing, as it were, in the mind of God completely called, justified, and even glorified in God's sight. So, it is going to work. It is going to make it to heaven. There won't be any failures to this. There won't be any slip-ups. The God who is in control of His elect, who is in control of the world, will see to it that all of His elect ones are taken unto heaven. And then fourthly, and lastly in this point, we said that this election is by the mere sovereign mercy and grace of God. In other words, why did God choose His people? Why did He choose His elect? And for that matter, each of the elect, why are they chosen? What grounds are they chosen upon? And the grounds according to Scripture is nothing more than the sovereign grace of and will of God. You see, He didn't have to. There was nothing in us that He would make us, that would make Him want to choose us. Remember, we fell in Adam. We were sinful. We did all these things. We were the children of wrath even as others. He didn't have to do any of this for us. Why does He love me? I don't know. You know, the Scripture says in um, uh, Romans chapter 9, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. That's Romans 9, verse 13. In case you don't believe that's in there, it really is. Romans 9, verse 13. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. We could certainly understand why he hated Esau. He was a fornicator from the beginning, the Scripture says. So we can get an idea as to why, though I don't believe that's why he hated it, but that's neither here the case. But I can say we can understand him hating Esau. Esau was a very wicked and wretched individual. He was a vile fornicator, the Scripture tells us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. But Jacob 
was no angel. Jacob, his very name, you remember, meant supplanter. He was a trickster. He was a sinner as well. But he says there, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And so the question isn't, well, why did he hate Esau? That I can understand. The question is, why did he love Jacob? What was there in Jacob that made God love him? I'll tell you, nothing. For whatever was in Jacob was also in Esau. And whatever was in Esau was also in Jacob because they both came out of the stock of Adam. They were all the sons of Adam. There was no difference. They were both sinful men. But if you read the context of that, that didn't enter into God's choice or the reason of His choice. He did so out of His mere sovereign will. Look in Romans 11. Oh, no, let's go to Romans 9. Let's just get right into the meat of it. That passage I just quoted, verse 13, there it is. Black and white again. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Now, the natural response to that kind of a statement is, is there unrighteousness with God? Can God love someone and hate someone? Can that be fair? Can that be right? Can that be just? Could that be unrighteous? Well, what is the answer? What's the answer to that question? What should we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God in that God sovereignly chose Jacob and he rejected Esau? He loved Jacob, hated Esau. Can, is there unrighteousness with God in that? The answer is the strongest way to say no in the English language, English language, which is God forbid. It's not just, no, he can't. It's God forbid he cannot be unrighteous. So when he loved Esau, or excuse me, he loved Jacob and he hated Esau, it wasn't wrong for God to do that. He plainly tells us here. God forbid that it would be wrong. The God of all the earth will do right. Scripture says. Well, now he's going to explain it. For he saith to Moses, and here's the point, that he, this is God's sovereign will at work. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, I will love Jacob because that's what I want to do. And I'll have mercy on whom I... You see... We are creatures of God. He created us. He owns us. And if He doesn't want to love us, He doesn't have to. And in this aspect, is certainly looked at as fallen men. Definitely, He doesn't have to show us mercy. But He says here, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. And, of course, the rest of that chapter. Look over in Romans 11, verse 5. Paul says, Even so then, at this present time, also there is a remnant, that is, the elect out of the Jews being saved, according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it's no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But it be of works, then it is no more of grace. Otherwise, work 
is no more work. Oh, you say, what's that tongue twister all about? It's just simply saying that if God chose his elect based on works, then it's no longer grace. But it is an election of grace. It's election of grace. It's not of man, man's faith or man's choosing. It is of God's sovereign will. In fact, even to the fact of the forgiveness, he says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake. And thus then, because of all of that, go back to our text now. This is where it hits in. Because of that, remember he asks, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? God does have an elect. He has done all these things that we've talked about. Thus then, he says, no charge can be brought against them. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? The implication there is, nobody can. These belong to God. Hands off. This is God's property. Keep out. No trespassing type of a thinking here. The idea, these belong to me. These are God's elect. And he says, hands off. And so, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Well, the answer is, nobody. Because they belong to him. But more so, notice this. They are so, they're not condemned, or they won't have these things upon them, because they are, as I said, God's elect. They do belong to him, and they belong belong to him, and he belongs to them, in that fact. Secondly, and notice the text, it says here, it is God who justifies. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? The immediate answer is, it is God that justifieth. The word justifies there means that he has declared them not guilty, though they are, but he's declared them not guilty, and he has imputed the righteousness of Christ to them. Remember, it says back up in verse 30, he justified them. And in Paul's language in Romans, the book of Romans, this idea means that God has pardoned their sins and he has accepted them righteous for Christ's sake. So God has justified them. It is as it were they were standing in his courtroom, all the elect gathered together and they've they've sinned. They're guilty. As far as their sins are concerned. But the judge looks down upon them and he sees that Christ has suffered in their stead and their righteousness has been imputed to them. And he takes that gavel and he brings it down and he says, not guilty. I declare you all innocent. Go home. You've been set free. That's what he means when he says it is God that justifies. God is our judge. And he has brought the gavel down, so to speak, and declared us not guilty. But notice verse 34. Not only that, but Christ has died for them. Actually, it doesn't stop there in verse 3. I know there's a period or a stop there in verse 33, but the thought continues on. Notice verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? In other words, God's justified us. The opposite of that is condemning. Then who shall do that? And how does he answer Who's going to condemn us? 
He tells us in verse 34, how does he answer that question? Now, we'll get into this next week, Lord willing. But it is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So another reason as to why no one shall lay a charge against us. One, we're God's elect. Secondly, we've been justified. Thirdly, Christ has died for us. Yea, rather, he's risen again and he sits there in heaven making intercession or praying over us. Now, it's true. When we think just of ourselves, we who are believers, there is much in reality to charge against us, isn't there? The elect are sinners. They fell in Adam. They are the children of wrath, even as others, Ephesians 2, 3 tells us. We daily sin, do we not? There is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. We daily transgress the law of God. And yet, my friend, there is a difference between us and the rest. And that difference is this. God has justified us. Think of that. While the rest will spend their eternity in hell, they will go their way down that broad road that leads to destruction. God, on the other hand, has a people that He has determined to save, and He has, and He has justified them, and He will bring them to heaven. They are justified declared not guilty and pronounced righteous and innocent in His sight. Just as if they had never, ever sinned. That's how well this works. When God looks upon His people, those who believe, He looks upon them as as if they were His Son in reality. Just. Righteous. Nothing against them. Now, this doesn't mean that God somehow is less of a God or that He's lessened His requirements of His holy law and His justice. And the point that Paul has been making these last eight chapters is that God has sent His Son into this world to justify His elect. The very Son of God, Jesus Christ, has taken their sins upon Him and He was punished in their account and His righteousness then was imputed or what we would say laid to their account. And doing all this, then God freely justifies them from all things. And that's why you can say back in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So think of this, Christian, here this evening. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Nobody. Nobody. Well, let me close with a couple, three, four applications. Three applications. First of all, Christian, what a glorious state it is to be in before God. Christian, think of this. God has justified us through Jesus Christ never again. Will we ever come under the damning influences of sin and God's condemnation? Ever. Never. 
You say, well, what about the next time I sin? Never. This isn't a, a, a verse to make us one of those sin. I'm just telling you the fact of the matter is that there is nothing that will ever separate us now from the love of God. That's verse 35, which you didn't get into tonight. Not even our sins. You see, because all the requirements for righteousness, for peace, for heaven have all been purchased, not by me, not by you, dear believer, but by Jesus Christ. And God willingly sent His Son into the world to redeem us. Notice verse 32. He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Secondly, does the fear of God's wrath plague you? Do you lay awake at night thinking about God's wrath being upon you? Then rest assured, if you belong to God, nothing whatsoever shall ever bring you into this into God's wrathful displeasure. Nothing. Nothing will ever separate you before between you and God. You say, "What are my personal sins?" Nothing. What of Satan? Nothing. What of trials and adversities and temptations and sorrows? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now, what do we say tonight to those who do not believe? Well, I can say this. None of these things that we speak may be, uh, certainly have nothing to do with your case tonight. You are condemned before God. His eternal wrath abides upon you even now, the Scripture says. And so my exhortation to you then is to flee to Christ. Believe upon Him who justifies the ungodly. This is the only hope for sinners, and that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The Scripture says in Mark 16, verse 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. John 3, verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Sinner, tonight, if you believe upon Christ, even now, I assure you this promise is true to you. Even where you sit. And has been true for all eternity. Past, present, and future. Trust Him now. What great grounds there is to venture out and to trust and to believe on Jesus Christ. Repenting of your sin and laying hold of Him by faith and faith alone. May God give you the grace then to believe upon the Son of God. And then Christian, again, what a glorious thing it is to be His. And to know this, and to be assured of it, by the grace of God, that we'll never, ever come into condemnation. And when those bites of consciences come towards us, Satan begins to whisper, the world begins to talk nonsense towards us, we can say, who shall lay anything to my charge? Nobody. Not even God. For it is God who justifies.